Well, good morning, everybody. Glad that you're here. Um, before we start, I just want to let you know, there was, there was a lady who was coming early to work on one of our volunteer teams, and she slipped and fell out here uh, on the sidewalk. So I'd like to ask you if you would just stop and pray with me for her. Will you pray with me? God, we're, we're so grateful for the teams and the people who sacrifice and show up early to serve us and to make services great. I just pray that, uh, especially for Diane, God, I pray that you will protect her, watch out for her. I pray that she will get the best care. And I pray that she also will get the best care from us as a church, as we love and know and care for each other. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, thanks to Michael and some of our tech team. They went out and uh, helped her as uh, she was kind of getting situated. And she actually went to St. Joe. And uh, I think our reports are she's doing better. But uh, keep, keep praying for Diane this week. So we are in a series called Strong in the Broken Places. And um, it really is following the 12 steps. So you may or may not know that the 12 steps essentially are founded on biblical principles. And my belief is that many times 12-step groups are doing a better job of living out the teachings of Jesus than the church in some cases, so we decided to borrow it back. And so we're, we're going to be looking at the, some of the steps today, and so far, uh, Darren has kind of been leading this series, and we've done steps one, two, and three. And we talk about the idea that we all have sin and addiction in our life, and it's something that we cannot conquer or manage with our own power. So if I was going to like summarize the first three steps uh, very quickly, w- way too quickly, but just hear me out, I would say it's this, like, I can't, God can, I think I'll let God Okay, that, that's step one, two, and three really quickly, okay? So today we move into step four. And step four says that I will make a searching and fearless inventory of my life. Followed up by step five, which says, I will admit to God and to myself and to another human being the exact nature of my wrongs. I think if we're honest, we would say that we all sort of struggle with the idea of where our life is versus where we want it to be. There's there's typically, for us, a gap between where we really live and where we want to live. Or there might be a gap between what we appear to have in our life compared to what we really have in our life. And as we talk about that gap, it's important, I think, to know that we sometimes respond by pretending. We want to sort of manage our image, and we, we want to fill that gap by making it look like everything is okay. And what happens is, is we choose that because we're afraid that if people really know who we are, if they really could see inside of us, they won't like us. They won't accept us. Will be on the outside. And complicating that is the fact that the church is the one place I think that is described as you should be able to come as you are, no pretense, no disguises, that you can come and be you and that you could be accepted. But unfortunately, 
the church doesn't have a great reputation with that. So what we're talking about today is each person, one by one, taking your step to take a look deep inside and then to admit to yourself and to God and to another person exactly what's going on in your life so that you can get your life back. So when we say that the 12 steps is, has its foundation in biblical principles, you might wonder, well, where is the biblical foundation? Where does the Bible talk about steps four and five? And there are a couple different places specifically that address what we see in step four and five. But the first one that I want to look at today comes from the book of First John. And if you look at First John chapter one, verses eight through 10, there's some very clear messaging and you can see how it relates to those two steps. Here's what it says. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. When John starts with those words, if we claim we have no sin, that's a simple way to say you're in denial or denial, as Darren says. And it's a, a guarantee almost that you're going to stay stuck and not experience the life change that you really want and need. I've had a, a few conversations with people in the last few months who were struggling with addictions, and I steered them to a 12-step program. And after they visited, a couple of them came back to me, and they told me that they really didn't think the group was going to work out. They, they didn't really think that was really what they needed. And I listened to their reasons, but here's what I think. If, if I were going to take a guess, I would say the reason the group wasn't going to work out is because for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time, they were face-to-face -face with people who were going to speak honestly to them and call them out to be honest as well. And being that honest was more than they felt like they could hear or accept. Jesus was the one who said, the truth will set you free. But we also know that the truth will probably first make you miserable. And this is where the searching and fearless inventory of our life comes into play because it's clearly not true that we don't have sin, that we don't have addictions or things that we're facing. And the God who says through John, the God who says that we are flawed and broken and sinful and trapped and that we have these addictions and sin that we can't break on our own is the one who claims to give us the power to do just that. I've got a friend, and he went through a really, really hard road with addiction. And some of us sort of watched this happen in real time. And we saw him lose his license, and then he lost his job, and then he lost his house, and soon after he lost his wife, and then he eventually loses his freedom when he ends up in jail. And the people around, like me, watched his life slowly fall apart. And here's the thing. His issue, alcohol, it was easy to identify and to name and to see 
And the truth is, I wish that we all could have it so good. Here's what I mean. What's especially dangerous for some of us, and me included, is that my sin of choice is not something quite so easy to see from the outside, but there are things just as destructive or maybe more so than substances, alcohol, narcotics, but they're so much easier to hide. There's just not much more dangerous than living in denial because you have a sin that's easy to hide. So what would that look like? Well, let's just say, for example, that instead of having an issue with alcohol or narcotics or some kind of substance, you have an issue with something like pride. What does it look like? Well, you're probably often in arguments because you know you're right. And you're probably often defensive because how dare someone question you? And you're probably impatient because you don't really like it when other people get in the way of your agenda. And when those things happen, and when we are on the outside watching those things happen in the lives of other people, we may simply chalk it up to the fact, that, oh, he, he's having a bad day. And if that person loses his job, we say, oh, he got a raw deal from his company. Or if that person ends up losing her spouse, we may say, well, they, they just weren't really right for each other. But the truth is, many of us have a sinful addiction that's easier to hide or more socially acceptable. And it may be pride, it may be jealousy, it may be greed, it may be envy, it may be lust. The list could go on. There's a writer by the name of Anne Lamott, and here's how she described and talked about this idea. She said, we are all spiritually powerless. However, not just those who are physically addicted to a substance. Alcoholics just have their powerlessness visible for all to see. The rest of us disguise it in different ways and overcompensate for our more hidden and subtle addictions. The reason that I say that I think many times AA groups and 12-step groups do a much better job living out the teachings of Jesus than even the church is because if we, instead of just giving a room in the basement or a space in our facility, if we focused on helping people who were greedaholics and jealousyaholics and enviaholics, if we focused on helping them to get honest, we would see that there would be significant life change. There would be remarkable life change if we were as honest about those things as we are about the visible stuff, which is exactly why we need that ruthless, personal investigation into our own life and habits so that even if no one else can see it, even if no one else knows what's going on with us on the inside, that we will be willing to identify and acknowledge the wrong in our lives. So what is your sin of choice? What is the thing that you feel may have you trapped and angry? Because if you haven't, dis if you haven't identified that yet, that's, that's what step four is for. It's so that we can take a searching and fearless moral inventory of what's inside of us. And that probably means that you're going to set aside some time, that you're gonna go someplace by yourself, you're gonna take a pen and paper, 
And you're going to spend some time reflecting on your life and what are the wrongs that need to be righted. Authenticity seems so elusive, but, you know, we, we love it when we see it. And when I look through the pages of the Bible, there's one guy in particular that stands out to me as someone who was just plain honest. There was not any pretending with this guy, not even a little tiny bit. And as a matter of fact, today he probably would be accused of disclosing too much. And his name? The Apostle Paul. And as a church leader and as an author of many of the books of the Bible, it would have been easy for him to hide behind this fake moral goodness, but he never did. Often in his writings, he stops and he tells very personal and revealing things about his own life. He always has this knack for keeping it real. And one of my favorites is in a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And in the middle of deep theology, and most theologians would say Romans is about as deep as it gets, but in the middle of deep theology, Paul stops and he gets, gets very, very personal. Listen to what he says from Romans chapter seven. He starts off and he says, the trouble is with me. Now, I, I think he could have said, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. But he chose his own words. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle in life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Like, seriously? I mean, that sounds like it is co-written by Taylor Swift and Dr. Seuss. I mean, that's like, that's some serious theology there. But you can't argue, you cannot argue with Paul's honesty. And what you see here are the beginnings, the beginnings of that, that, that searching and fearless moral inventory. And this is one of the places, but there are other places where Paul is even more candid about what it is that has gone on in his life and is going on in his life. And one of those is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Here's what Paul says. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. Now, what's really interesting about that is Paul literally is saying that that, that word is like, I'm the first. It's not really worse. I'm the first. I'm, I'm the, I have first place on the worst list. And it's not really just false humility. Paul believes this to his core. But there's another word that I kind of want to draw your attention to in that sentence when Paul says that I am the worst. And, you know, back in high school, English class, when you 
knew that there was nothing of value in that class and that you were never gonna use it, I'm breaking your 20-year streak. So here it is. The word am, present tense, that Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. Now, here's, what, here's what's important to keep in mind. When Paul is saying, I am the chief or I am the worst of all sinners, this is 30 years after he was like a violent, like a religious witch hunting kind of person. And by his own description, he said he was completely consumed with himself and self-centered. So what I like about this is that in spite of the fact that 30 years has passed, and even though it would have been very, very easy for Paul to say, was, I was the worst of all sinners, he says, I am, because he wasn't going to allow time to sanitize his story, to make things look better than they really were. There's no way he's allowing himself or anyone else to think that he's got all of his sin managed and all that stuff is behind him. A few weeks ago, I told you guys a story about uh, when I was fresh out of seminary and I was working at a church and I, I had a conversation with a pastor where I was working in this internship and essentially it sort of turned into this very immature rant where my, my, my judgmentalism and arrogance just kind of were shining bright. And he called me on it, but the truth of the matter is that when I told that story, I, I really kind of felt pretty safe. You know why? Because when we hear or tell things that are from 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, we kind of wink and grin and say, yeah, yeah, everybody was dumb once, right? And we kind of hope that it'll be sanitized by the years that, that have passed. You know, it's, it's easy to be honest about a checkered past when you can pretend like it's all done. But if I'm honest with me, if I ruthlessly take inventory of my life, I still see a lot of pride and judgmentalism in me. And what I want to do is I want to keep the present tense. I want to keep some of the present tense in my moral inventory. Like, what is the truth about what I'm struggling with now? So since you brought it up, this week, I was doing a report, you know, for the church, kind of an annual report, and I'd sent it to our leadership team so they could see it and, and, and possibly give feedback. And one of the leadership team members called me and she was kind of giving me some ideas and pointers and suggestions about how the report could be better. I listened politely and I told her that I would see what I could do to adjust the report in the way that she had recommended. But I gotta tell you, inside, I didn't say any of this, but inside, I'm thinking, no, actually, those, those changes really aren't needed. If you knew what I knew, you probably wouldn't even have made those recommendations because they're not necessary. And this wasn't just a matter of a difference of opinion about how things were described. This was, this was my defense of being right. But I hid it really well. She probably had no idea how proud I was that I really didn't need any of those suggestions. And the truth is, the hardest truth that we have to tell is the truth that we have to tell ourselves. And that's why step five says, admit to ourselves 
and to God and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. So when we read from, the, from, from John, he covers a couple of those because he says, I don't want you to be fooling yourselves. In other words, don't claim that you have no sin. In other words, you need to admit to yourself that you've got stuff in your life. And he also goes on to say that you should confess those things to God. But it's James, another one of the apostles who had become the pastor of Jerusalem, and he wrote a letter that is called James. And he says in James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. There's this, there's this strange power that comes in verbalizing things to another person. For, for one thing, just, there might be just an instant relief because of the fact that you've said it. There's also a kind of accountability that kind of comes into play because someone else knows what's really going on in your life. And what James mentions is this. He says, if that person that person that you're confessing to will pray for you, there's an incredible kind of power in that because if they pray for you and they are truly someone who seeks God, that, that prayer is gonna matter. That prayer is gonna make a difference. As we wrap up today, I, just, I wanna tell a story very quickly that Jesus told and it's very short and very powerful from Luke's gospel, Luke 18. Jesus tells this story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And they both go to the temple to pray. I mean, think church, two guys going to church to pray. But the Pharisee, this is the guy who is, he's at the top of his game religiously. He does it all right. He gives the right amount of money. He knows the Bible inside and out. Everything that you're supposed to do he does. And the people who see him think, wow, this guy must be amazing. But when this guy goes to the temple to pray, his prayer is probably in a very conspicuous place. And he begins to remind God of all the good things he's done. And he ends by saying, and I'm really glad I'm not that guy, as he points over to the tax collector. Because the tax collector on the other side is the complete opposite end of the spectrum. This is a guy who is, he's denied his people and he's denied his God by abandoning his faith and going to work for the enemy state. And it says this guy is humbly bowing to God and praying sincerely, recognizing that he's a sinner. It's obvious in that world how everything stacked up. Everyone knew who had the inside track to heaven and who was really good with God. And they knew that it was the Pharisee and they knew that that tax collector didn't have a chance. And Jesus, when he tells this story, he kind of turns the tables, turns things on its ear because the one who appeared to be so well put together was the one who was the most morally sick. And Jesus said, in Luke chapter five, he said, I came for the sick, not for the healthy. And also, hint, hint, Nobody's healthy. All of us have stuff in our life. I think 
what Jesus was saying, if we wanted to put it in the simplest terms, was I can't do anything for pretenders unless they're willing to stop pretending. Authenticity can only start with you. No one can do it for you. No one can force you to do it. But if you will risk taking off that disguise and being willing to be yourself and to come as you are, you can start a whole new life.